Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the, of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. And they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns the wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs 
There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place, and sow fields and plant vineyards, that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them, and they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Please be seated. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father God, I pray that this morning we would be able to give you thanks for your wonderful word. As we're reminded this morning from your word of our responsibility to give thanks to you. First and foremost, for who you are, but also to give you thanks for your wonderful works toward the children of men. Father, I thank you for this psalm. Thank you for including this in your word. It's very instructive for each one of us, especially for those of us who are called children of God. May we learn much from this word this morning. May we listen to hear what your spirit has to teach us this morning from your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a song that has a chorus that goes something like this. His favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love. There's nothing more he'd rather hear nor so pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. You know, I was thinking about that as I was reading this psalm. Because Psalm 107, church, is a song of the redeemed. It's a song of the redeemed. Brought back from captivity, the redeemed have much to be thankful for in this psalm. I want you to consider that as you read through this psalm. But this psalm is not just for those who were taken into captivity many years ago. This psalm is for you as well, church. You know, again, reminded of the hymn, Redeemed, and thinking about redeemed. Do you love to proclaim it? That's what the hymn writer says, how I love to proclaim it. The question is, do we love to proclaim it? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. You know, as you come to Psalm 107, you need to understand a few things. Taken on its own, Apart from any surrounding context, 
you can observe some main ideas, some themes, some highlights. Hopefully you notice as you read through the psalm some repetition. I want you to remember as we spoke last week, this is the third of three psalms we've been studying together, looking at some psalms of thanksgiving this month. And last week we talked about getting some handles on what a psalm is. A psalm, you remember, is a song, a prayer, praise, poem, an expression of worship. And I was drawn this week to consider Psalm 107 as a song and really found it helpful to see it as a song. Typically, when you sing a song or when you sing a hymn like we did this morning, you have stanzas, you have a chorus, you might have a bridge in the song. As you study this psalm, you might package it into four stanzas. The chorus is repeated four times. In fact, I'll just point out the chorus to you. Perhaps you recognize it as it was being read, but verse 8 Verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. That's the chorus of the song. Contextually, Psalm 107 is the first psalm in book 5 of the Psalms. Book 5 consists of Psalms 107 all the way through the end, 150. And in many ways, this collection is a collection of praise psalms. In fact, Psalm 146, 47, 48, 149, 150 are called the Hallelujah Psalms. Praise the Lord Psalms. Psalm 107 is also connected with Psalms 105 and 106. If you read Psalm 105, 106, and 107, you're going to see a connection between the three. In fact, if you see the beginning of Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2, it begins this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Verse 1 of Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And then we see even at the end of Psalm 106, verse 47, a fitting segue into Psalm 107. It says, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles. For what purpose? To give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. And church, that's really what we have before us in Psalm 107. The Lord has gathered them from among the nations. And the response to what God has done, the response to who God is, is praise, thanksgiving. So look at the first three verses. Really, in many ways, this is the introduction into the song. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north And from the south. And while it's true that all the nations will one day bow the knee to Jesus and with their tongues confess that he is Lord, that's what Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11 tells us. 
There is also, church, there's also an obligation for the people of God to be a thankful people. Amen? There's an obligation. This is not an option. Word says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So church, whether we're talking about giving thanks to the Lord or exalting his name during this holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, the responsibility for praise and thanksgiving falls upon those who bear the name of Jesus. If you haven't heard it yet, it's probably coming. Some point here in the next few weeks, there's going to be some report or a series of reports. Someone is offended over the greeting of Merry Christmas. Huh? How many of us hear that? Almost every year. Comes up sometime. Or, or, or the window display that puts a big X in the place of Christ. These things, no doubt, are disturbing. But it ought not surprise us. Because you see, if people are lost and without the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be absent in their speech and he'll be pushed aside. The world's going to push him aside. Let it be said of us, though, church, as children of God, that we are praising his name and giving thanks to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the redeemed say so. This is important. Has Jesus made a difference in your life? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Has your life been changed by a baby boy who came on the scene in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago? Then let the redeemed say so. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ intended to be shared with others? And are you waiting for that local business to get the right message on the window? Is that what you're waiting for? Let's look to the word this morning. It tells us to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We have a message to tell to the nations, do we not? We do. We have a message. We've been given. The redeemed of the Lord. Let us say so. Notice that in the text in verse 2, it concludes, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands. You see, we're to give thanks to remember his goodness and mercy as the people of God. And as the people of God, the psalmist is quick to point to the basis of our redemption. He has redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. And while it is true that God rescued his people here in this psalm, he rescued them from captivity. It is also true that he delivered his people here out of the power of darkness. Amen? He's done that. Psalm 107, like some of the other Psalms recounts the history of God's dealings with his people in captivity. And right up front, there's a call to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and a call for the redeemed of the Lord to say so, to speak up, to say something about that. To make the declaration that God is the one who has redeemed them and brought them out of bondage. Psalm 106, verse 10, a connecting point right here, says that he saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them, there's that phrase, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And in that context in Psalm 106, talking about what God did for his people in light of Pharaoh and the Egyptians pressing in upon them. 
Well, let's look at stanza one. Stanza one begins in verse four. It's going to run through verse nine. And we see here in verses four and five, we see the state of the people, where the people once found themselves. Here we see they wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Remembering their former state. This is one of four pictures that the psalmist is going to give us. Pictures of God's people. Of their lives and how their lives had been. But praise the Lord, that's not the only picture we get. Their former state. Because right after that, in verse 6... We see that in the midst of that situation, verse 6 tells us that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. We're going to see that as a pattern in each of these stanzas. They're going to remember the Lord. They're going to cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And so the history recorded here recounts times where God's people found themselves in trouble. Anyone here think of times in your past when you found yourself in trouble? People of God found themselves in trouble. They were in trouble. And the word here tells us that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. You know, maybe some of you here, I don't know your story, all of you. But maybe some of you were like that prodigal son who left home and squandered all your possessions. You lived high on the dollar for a while, fulfilling the desires of your flesh. And then one day you realize that your good idea to do things on your own wasn't such a good idea anymore. The Lord was convicting you, and perhaps you didn't verbalize it as that. But you were having too much fun to go a different direction. But there came a day when there was a famine in the land. You remember the story? And he's wallowing in that mud. Remember that? And he goes back home to his father. You see, there maybe came a point in your life where you had nowhere else to turn. And so you cried out to the Lord in your help, for your help in your trouble. The end of verse 6 gives us the result of the people crying out. And then as the Lord hears the cry of his people. This is going to be a general statement all throughout the stanzas, these four stanzas. The Lord hears the cry of his people. And he delivered them out of their distresses. You see, the psalmist expresses in general right here what the Lord did when his people cried out to him in the midst of their trouble. The pattern of the psalm is to declare that the Lord delivered them from their distresses. But the psalmist then goes on to share specifically how. In this instance, how did he deliver them? So the general God delivering them is going to be followed up by a specific, in each stanza, how he delivered them. So we see here in verses 7 and 8, specific way that he delivered them. Excuse me, verse 7. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. You know, I was thinking about Ezra. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God. For what purpose? To seek from him, from God. To seek from God the right way. For us, and our little ones, and all our possessions. 
Reminded of Psalm 5, verse 8. When Psalmist says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Reminded of that hymn, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Amen? We need his tender care. We need his leadership. Proverbs 2, verse 8 says that he, the Lord, guards the paths of the justice of justice and preserves. He preserves the way of his saints. So how did God deliver his people? He led them forth by the right way. He led them forth by the right way. Have you noticed how many people today are directionless, wandering about with no purpose in life, floating through life? You know anyone like that? Just seem to just kind of be wandering. God is always going to lead you in the right way. He's always going to lead you in the right way. If you're looking for a sure thing today, I want to share something with you that I've learned from the scriptures. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. You remember the song? He works in ways that you and I can't see. But he makes a way. I'm thinking of the song, God, how God leads his dear children along. And and how does he do it? Some through the waters. Some through the flood. Some through great fire, but all through what? The blood. Some through great sorrows. But church, God gives a song in the night seasons and all the day. He he is giving a song. He is with us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. See, what was true of God in the past is still true today. He will lead you in the right way through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit working mightily in you. Okay? Verse 8 then, after unveiling the specific way, means of deliverance, we have this resounding chorus. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. For his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. The chorus draws you back to verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And I want you to get something with this chorus. The chorus captures two primary things. First of all, a call for men to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for who he is. And a call for men to give thanks to the Lord for his wonderful works. Now, we think about a chorus in music we oftentimes see it as a, it's a response to the stanza. In this case, the people of God were wandering in a desolate way, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainting in them. They cried out to the Lord. He delivered them. How? By leading them in the right way. For what purpose? That they might go to a city for a dwelling place. And in light of that, the chorus resounds with, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. You see, time and again in the psalm, there is a picture describing the state of being for the people of God, where they used to be, the position they once found themselves in. And God shows up and delivers time and time again. The response from the text is the chorus. 8, 15, 21, and 31. Those are the verses where we see the chorus. So I believe the call here, men, women, young, old, is to give thanks to the Lord 
for his goodness, for who he is, and for his wonderful works, for what he has done. Now, the verse after the chorus is oftentimes a tagline. It's describing why or giving reason for giving him thanks. Verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Why give thanks to the Lord? He satisfies the longing soul. And, and look what he does. I love this in the text. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. Did you know that there is only one who truly satisfies your soul? There's only one. Wealth doesn't do it. Maybe in the short term you think it might. It doesn't in the long term. Big house doesn't do it. Nice car doesn't do it. The latest and greatest technology, phone, laptop, iPod, whatever technology you want to put out there, that doesn't do it. Some of you may be even relying upon your own intellect to satisfy. Listen, God gave you your brain. There's one, only one who truly satisfies. I love the song that says, Oh, hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. Jesus is the only one that satisfies. Look at stanza two, starting in verse 10. We see here in verses 10, 11, and 12, the state of the people where they once were, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction, and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised, those are key words, they rebelled and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. The situation here in 10 through 12 being described sounds hopeless, doesn't it? Prisoners in affliction and irons. The picture is one Awaiting a sentence of execution, one who is about to die. Solitary confinement, perhaps. A place of darkness. I want you to notice the reason for their imprisonment, though. It says, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. There's a reason for their sitting in darkness. A reason they were taken captive into another land. And I believe these two words, rebel and despise are appropriate for each of us. For we too were rebellious toward God and his word. We too despised his counsel. The words in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, remind us of who we once were. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It's a picture of who we once were. But praise the Lord, as that next verse in Titus says, praise the Lord that in his kindness and in his love, Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and by his mercy he saved us. You know, there's also a lesson we can learn from the scriptures from a pagan king. I'm reminded of that verse at the end of Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the story. You remember what he had to go through. And you remember the humiliating situation God put him through. But on the other end of that humiliating situation, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up the name and exalted the name of this God of heaven. 
And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. Listen to what he says. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So whether you are the king of Babylon, Assyria, Medes and the Persians, whether you reign as Roman emperor, or whether you may reside as the current president of these United States of America, it's important for us to see in the text, he's able to put you down. And if God can put down kings and presidents, don't you think he can put you down as well? And when he puts you down, I want you to notice what the text says. There was none to help. And this is so true today, church. All the problems that people go through, all the difficulties, all the trials that come, when you walk in rebellion to God's words, when you despise the Most High and live life according to self, according to that high intellect of yours, He's able to put you down and there is none apart from God's Son, Jesus Christ, who can truly help your situation. Look at verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. There it is again. The Lord hears the cry at the end of 13, and he saved them out of their distresses. And then verse 14. Specifically, how did he do this? He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Church, here I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 1 and this good news in chapter 1 of 13 and 14. How God, he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption. We talk about being a redeemed people. How do we, how do we become a redeemed people? It's through what God did through his son, Jesus Christ. He took us from darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son. whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I'm also reminded of that stanza in the song, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? See, when we understand the specific nature of how God delivers us, it leads us to another resounding course. Oh, <laughs> that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 16 gives us the tagline there. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Church, we need to understand something. Your pending death sentence has been pardoned. You've been pardoned. God has provided the substitute in his only son, Jesus Christ, through the cross... He has broken down the gates of bronze and the bars of iron. And only God through Jesus Christ could accomplish this. And so give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Praise him for he is greatly to be praised. Amen. 
He's greatly to be praised. Stanza 3, starting in verse 17. We see in 17 and 18 where they once were fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death. You know, the proverb writer oftentimes speaks of the righteous and the fool. The fool, according to Psalm 53, has said in his heart that there is no God. Psalm 10, verse 4, speaks of the wicked, which is used interchangeably oftentimes in the Proverbs with fool. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. We were talking this past week in a men's study. Some of you might remember that we're there. When God is not in your thoughts, that would be definition for walking in ungodliness. Not thinking about God. How often, church, do we go about our day when we're not thinking about God? Not thinking about His will. Not thinking about His glory. I want you to notice again in recounting the history of God's people that the psalmist gives reason for their state of being. Here it's because of their transgressions and their iniquities that they were afflicted. Sickness unto death. They were at the gates of death. That was the path that they were on. And then we get to verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And we hear that the Lord responds to their cry. He saved them out of their distresses. Verse 20 gives us the specific way that he did that. Notice this. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Here I was reminded of Luke's gospel in chapter 7. The centurion. You remember the centurion? He sent friends to Jesus saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But listen to what he says here. But say the word. Say the word and my servant will be healed. Church, the word of the Lord that goes forth. It accomplishes much. In fact, Isaiah 55 verse 11, God says, my word, it it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which it was sent. The word of the Lord, church, brings healing and delivers from destruction. The first verse of Romans chapter 10, Paul is pouring out his heart. And he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel would be saved. And if you keep reading through Romans 10, you get to verse 17. So then faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by what? The word of God. The word of God has the power to save. The word of God has the power to turn a fool into a righteous man. And then we get to that resounding chorus once again. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. For his wonderful works to the children of men. 
The tag there, verse 22, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving. That phrase, the sacrifices of thanksgiving, references all the way back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 7. And it was there in Leviticus chapter 7 where there's, there are sacrifices that are accompanying the peace offerings to God. These sacrifices of thanksgiving. It says that they're also to declare his works with rejoicing. To declare his works with singing. You know, Jonah the prophet spent some time in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2 of Jonah recounts his prayer while he's in the fish. And in verse 9, chapter 2, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. The Hebrew writer in chapter 13, verse 15, speaks of a response that involves sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. Therefore, by him, that's Christ, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. It's reminded of that chorus of how we are to bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. With my mouth will I make known, what? Thy faithfulness. Thy faithfulness to all generations. Here again, the redeemed are the ones that need to be saying these things. The redeemed of the Lord are to give God thanks. You see, we used to be a wandering people. We used to be seeking something to satisfy. We used to be dead in our transgressions, rebelling against the Most High. We used to be children of wrath. Our transgressions and iniquities separated us from God. But God delivered us. Amen. That's that's good news. That's really good news. And I think there's some of us in here who are believers in Jesus Christ, who know what God did for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But that hasn't really impacted their lives. They know it, but it's not being exercised. Church, I want to encourage you. And this psalm is a huge encouragement to us as children of God to always be mindful, to give God thanks for who he is and for what he's done. Look at verse 4, starting in verse 23. Remembering Again, their former state, their situation. It says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. You know, in Jonah chapter 1, the prophet Jonah finds himself on board a ship bound for Tarshish. Jonah is running from God and doesn't make it himself to Tarshish. God allowed Jonah to get into the boat, but Jonah couldn't hide from God. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, we see that the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. In fact, that phrase, the the wind, the storm, kept growing more tempestuous. That's the phrase that keeps coming, keeps coming in Jonah chapter 1. Verse 5, chapter 1, the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God. Tells us something about the mariners on board the ship. 
And then Jonah 1, verse 7, the mariners said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. You know, I read Psalm 107, 23 to 27, and I have a hard time separating that passage from Jonah the prophet. You see, Jonah and the mariners evidenced God's wonders in the deep. They saw the works of the Lord. Jonah himself experienced God's wonderful works. Look at verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And we see the follow-up to that, that the Lord hears their cry. He brings them out of their distresses. Then look at 29 and 30. He calms the storm. How does he deliver? He calms the storm. So that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, church, this is good here. You see, God's calming of the storm produces gladness here in the text. Spiritually speaking, God calms the troubled soul, does he not? When the waves and wind come crashing down, the child of God stands upon the rock of ages and has this calm assurance, this blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. No matter what circumstance, he's already delivered my soul from danger. I was reminded of of, of that chorus that, that some of you may have heard this, but it fits so well right here. How sometimes he calms the storm. With a whispered, peace be still. You remember Jesus' words? Peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Listen, sometimes he calms the storm and other times he calms the child. How many storms, church, has God stilled in your life? How many storms has God allowed to continue, perhaps, in your life? See, there ought to be a thanks to God right here as we read this text. Because this is a God who calms the storm and at times has simply come alongside you. How does he come alongside you? Through the comforting presence of his Holy Spirit. Through his healing word. Perhaps through the encouragement of a brother or sister in Christ. The wind and waves may continue for a time. But in those moments, God has a way of calming his child. Remember that he is guiding you to your desired haven. What is your desired haven? If you are a stranger and pilgrim here on earth, what is your desired haven? It is Christ with Christ in heaven. And that is where he's leading And church, that is the right way. It's so comforting to read these words. Because every single one of you, myself included, have gone through, are going through, or will be going through some kind of storm. Let me encourage you as parts of the body of Christ. 
when you know of someone going through a storm. I hope and pray that these words come to light because you, as a part of the body of Christ, can be an encouragement to come alongside of one who's going through the storm. God can and wants to use you to be an encouragement to the one going through the storm. How can you encourage them? No doubt your presence, just being there for them. How else can you encourage them? What's the primary way you can encourage them? Give them God's word. This is the healing. This brings about the cleansing. This is the comfort. If they are in Christ, they have the comforter working in them and alongside them. Praise God that he calms the storm. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The resounding chorus comes right after this. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Look at the tag in verse 32. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. You know, there are many here today who have experienced God calming a storm in their own lives. We gather together for worship. Church, our prayer times in the assembly ought to be filled with thanksgiving to God. Ought to be filled with thanksgiving to God for all that he's done. Exalt him in the assembly. Praise him in the company of the elders. See, when you have experienced the calming effect of God, whether he removes the storm or whether he simply calms you, the psalmist is calling you to let someone know about it. Church, let's practice this principle. Make his name known. Give God glory for what he's done through your storm, in your storm. We arrive at the bridge in the song, verses 33 through 42. And, you know, you think about a bridge in, in a song, it's typically a transition of some kind. Music builds, music may get softer. The lyrics here in the bridge are not detached from the stanzas and chorus, but they contribute to the whole of the song. And so it is here in Psalm 107, verses 33 through 42, they connect pieces from each stanza. So as you read 33 to 42, I'd encourage you to see Little pieces and bits of how these connect to stanza one, two, three, and four. Look at 33 through 35. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. You see, not only can God take a calm sea and make it stormy, but he can take the stormy seas and make them calm. He can also turn rivers into a wilderness. He can take the mighty Nile River, can he not? And make it useless at his word. Remember, it turned into blood. He can take a fruitful land and turn it into barrenness. 
Notice the text says, for the wickedness of those who dwell there. You remember Abram? And they were, they were parting ways. Remember that? Genesis 13. He had Lot with him. And he essentially allows Lot to choose. Where would you like to go? And Lot's looking out. Remember his choice? It was the plain of the Jordan. Well-watered land. Well, it doesn't take very long. Just a few verses later, in fact, in Genesis 13, you read, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And not long after that, we read that God, in Genesis 19, 24, He rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah out of the heavens. You see, the place that had been well-watered and well-pleasing to the eye became like the smoke of a furnace, Genesis 19, 28 says. God did that. In light of what God can do, how with his mighty hand and outstretched arm, he can change the course of events with the breath of his word. The, the text presents an urgency to come under the authority of this almighty God. Now I was reminded of Isaiah 55 and 6 and 7. Seek the, it's a call to come unto the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, listen, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the God we serve, church. Look at verses 36 to 38. There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place. Notice stanza one. Stanza one talks about the hungry and the thirsty. Talks about in verse seven, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly. He does not let their cattle decrease. I love that. It's almost like a, an added benefit. Does not let their cattle decrease. The God even cares about their, their cattle. He owns the cattle, right? That's what Psalm 50 says. He owns them all. Owns all things but he's about allowing them to be able to be fruitful. And he's blessing them. Psalm 30, 107, 39, and 40. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrows. He stands a two and stands a three. It talks about affliction. What's he do? He pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. The wilderness is deemed early on and stands a one, a desolate way. And yet we see the, that what God does in delivering his people, he delivers them that they may go in the right way. Not continue in the desolate way, in the wilderness way. You know, Job, as he's speaking in chapter 12, he says these words in 19 through 21. He says, God, speaking of God, he leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. And takes away the discernment of the elders. He, here it is. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. God does these things. Verses 41 and 42. Yet he has set the poor on high, far from affliction. You might remember part of Hannah's prayer in Samuel chapter 2. Talking about how he sets the poor on high. But you also can recall stanzas 2 and 3. Far from affliction. And he makes their families like a flock. He sent his word and healed them. 
Delivered them from their destructions. Remember stanza three? The righteous see it and rejoice. I think of stanza four there in that the men at sea were able to see the works of the Lord. All iniquity stops its mouth. See, the bridge continues upholding this great God that we serve, weaving in the themes of the four stanzas and drawing our attention to his goodness and his wonderful works among the children of men. And then you arrive at verse 43. Some of you perhaps thought we would never get to verse 43. We made it. Verse 43. What's verse 43 in terms of thinking about it as a song? I'd label verse 43 as a coda. What's a coda? Those of you that play the piano, what's a coda? Know what a coda is? Let me give you a couple definitions for those of you that don't know. I didn't know a good definition, so don't feel bad if you didn't know. I like what one person had to say about it. It's a, it's a recap, a summation. It, it gives, this is good, it gives an extended reason for praise. Isn't that good? I like that. It gives us an extended reason for praise. It's a term that we use in, in, in music primarily to designate a passage that brings a, a piece or a movement to an end. Verse 43 says, whoever is wise, or it asks the question, who is wise? Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. The loving kindness, that word in the Hebrew, it's, it's the same word that's used early on in verses 1 and 2 for good. Or some translations may have loyal love. They will understand the loving kindness, the goodness, the loyal love. Of the Lord. And the coda here in verse 43 may bring an end to Psalm 107, but it takes you back to the main theme of God's goodness from which we begin. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the coda also emphasizes the theme of the chorus. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Church Thursday is a day that many celebrate Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Day on the calendar. I hope after reading these words here in Psalm 107, you too would agree that you have much to be thankful for. Your lives, though, are to be expressions of thankfulness put on display each day of the year. The call here in the text is to speak of his goodness, to give him thanks for his wonderful works among the children of men. And church, the text indicates that thanksgiving to God is a privilege of the redeemed. Therefore, let the redeemed say so. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. I'd just like to read a passage that I believe in many ways... There are many wonderful passages in the Old Testament prophets that speak to God's people being in captivity and the promises of God rescuing them and bringing them out of captivity. I just would like to close by reading one in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 8. I'll be reading bits and pieces down through 14. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, Gather them from the ends of the earth 
from the east, from the west, from the north, and the south. That's Psalm 107 language. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way. Or in the language of Psalm 107, the right way. In which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. And declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming, listen, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Even the cattle will not decrease, Psalm 107 says. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance. And listen to this last line. And my people shall be satisfied With my goodness, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this morning for your goodness. We're grateful to have before us your faithful word, which reminds us of your mercy, which endures forever. Father, thank you for redeeming us by the blood of the Lamb, your perfect, righteous Son, whom you gave for us to satisfy your necessary wrath towards sin. Father, you placed our sins upon your Son. Your Son was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was placed upon your Son, and only by his stripes, which led to death on the cross, Are we healed and called your own? We thank you, Father, for your goodness. For when we were in bondage, under the elements of the world, when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Father, it is your goodness that leads us to repentance. Thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. Your grace is truly an amazing grace. And I pray for those who today are far from you as I speak. I pray that you would impress upon them, Lord, the severity of their sin... And yet remind them that your wonderful grace far surpasses the depth of their sin. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for the wonderful works to the children of men. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory 
with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.